Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you with us as our guest speaker, Dr. John Jackson, leads us through a part of the Gospel of Matthew as he speaks on wet hair in the desert. We're reminded that we all experience deserts in life, and they're common. In today's study, we find that we worship a God who specializes in taking messes and turning them into miracles. Listen as Dr. Jackson gives us some pointers on how to handle life in a crisis that we didn't predict and we can't control. Well, good morning, Bay Hills. Well, I know this, you follow your pastor's direction, uh, so that's good. Uh, I wish that the college students were afraid of me. They're not afraid of me, but uh, it's great to be here with you. Your church has such a great uh, reputation, and I had a great conversation with your pastor. He has such a, a heart that you be uh, well-led and well-fed, and I can just tell by walking around earlier, by being part of the worship experience earlier, just to know that, that you are. Would you just honor the worship team for their ministry in our midst, the way they lead us? I also want to point out another group of people. There's, there's folks uh, whose names you may not know who uh, serve outside in uh, parking areas, who greeted you as hosts when you came in, who uh, help with registration, help with refreshments, help with children's ministry in the prayer room. All those folks who serve behind the scene uh, who may not ever be visible up front, would you just honor them for their uh, hard work today? I particularly want to thank the tech crew and admit right away, if there's a single error that happens today, either in sound, light, or slide, uh, it is not their fault. It is the rookie up front. So please don't, uh, don't hold anything against it. All right. Hey, take your teaching notes out. Uh, we're going to uh, do a teaching today that I really believe that the Lord has for you, and I'll share this with you in just a moment. But before I go any further, does anybody know anything about William Jessup University? How many of you know anything about Jessup? Uh, okay, three of you. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, so let me just very quickly tell you this. We have about 1,400 students. We've rapidly grown the last uh, several years. We've more than doubled. Uh, we've added uh, math and sciences and arts, and uh, God is just doing some great things there at Jessup. If you think about Southern California schools, think about Azusa, Biola, Cal Baptist, Westmont, etc. We're like those schools, except better. And... <laughs> Well, would you think I would say we're worse than those schools? Come on. They're great schools. We love them and appreciate them. But uh, we, we believe God's called us to be a premier Christ-centered education, a Christ-centered university up here in Northern California. I'll tell you three quick things we try to do there, and then we'll get on to the teaching for today. The first thing is this. Uh, we really think that you should thrive spiritually when you come to Jessup. In other words, we don't, we don't think college should be a time where your faith gets torn down. We think it should actually get built up during college. And so that's part of That's worth Yes, yeah, a yay, God. And we're so excited about what God's doing on our campus, the way he's causing young men and young women to, to be built into. So thriving spiritually. Second one is quality liberal arts education. I know we live in a highly technical age, and I'm, I fly on airplanes. I'm all for uh, people who are mechanical engineers and aeronautical engineers to be able to stress test metal, to do quantitative analysis. I'm very much for the technical. I use uh, computers and, and a variety of other things like that. But I really believe that when you graduate from college, you ought to be able to read, write, think, and speak well. And, and if you don't, you should get a refund. 
Although the lawyers won't let me put that in writing. So I uh, can't put it in writing. But that's what we're going for. Is thrive spiritually, quality liberal arts. And, and then here's the third thing. And mom and dad, pay attention to this one because I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, we also believe that our graduates, when they graduate from Jessup, should be exceptionally employable. And here's what we mean by that. We think that a season of learning ought to be followed by a lifetime of earning that there is a moment where uh, kids get off the parental dole. Is anybody in favor of that uh, here as a parent? Yeah, me too. I got five kids. Uh, our kids are 32. My wife and I have been married uh, 37 years, almost 38. We have five kids, 32, 29, 26. Those are all girls, all married all through college. And then we have 20 and 18-year-old boys. Every once in a while, people look at us and they go, oh, you guys are a blended family, right? And we say, no, we're just non-strategic. <laughs> so anyway... So, uh, so we, uh, we're excited. Last year, 85% of our students, when they walked across the platform at graduation, either had a full-time job or were going to graduate school full-time immediately after school. So that's, uh, that's part of our commitment. We'd love to have you be a part of Jessup. All right. So you got your teaching notes out. Um, I want to share a personal experience with you, and uh, it just uh, hopefully this will set the stage. Uh, I don't know you. I don't know the context of your life or experience. I've uh, had the privilege to come, and uh, I certainly uh, love and appreciate the reputation of this church. Gil Stiglitz is a very, very close personal friend. I love uh, Gil and Dana and their uh, family, and so they honor this church, honor their heritage uh, here. And so I just simply want to share with you something that happened to me a number of years ago. And I remember exactly where I was. I was in Pleasanton, California. I was at a pastor's conference. I was speaking at the conference and I was going to be receiving a couple hundred pastors there gathered in Pleasanton. And uh, I just have a habit of when I go away. So if I'm away from my wife or, or family, when I go to a motel room, this is just my discipline, not saying it has to be yours. I go into the hotel room, I close the door, I, I put the deadbolt on and I do not turn on the TV. That's just a personal discipline. Uh, it could be distracting, maybe just other things. So I just dis- decided I'm not going to listen to TV. So uh, I spent the night in the room the night before. Uh, I think I had spoken that afternoon. And I got up the next morning uncharacteristically early, just particularly early. And uh, for whatever reason, I just felt like I was supposed to turn on the TV. So I turned the TV on to the news and I finished getting ready. I think I plugged in the coffee and I, you know, maybe started shaving or something like that. And while I was watching the news, I noticed that they were covering an airplane crash. And, you know, that wasn't terribly out of the ordinary. But all of a sudden, while I was sort of watching out of the corner of my eye, a second plane hit the towers. And there was a scream on the news screen as they were watching this first tower burning. And then the second tower plane hit. And as soon as I saw the plane hit that second tower, I knew something completely unnatural and unbelievably and unimaginably evil had taken place in our world. And I knew that nothing would ever be the same. I got on the phone right away, called my wife. Uh, she started watching the TV. Uh, pastors began to gather in the lobby. We spent a few hours together praying and talking. And then eventually uh, we all headed home. And I was uh, serving in a church we had established in uh, Carson Valley, Nevada, just south of Carson City. And I got there at home just in time to join several hundred other people in a prayer gathering for our city. Some of you remember where you were on 9-11. Others in this room, maybe you'll remember where you were on the day that Kennedy was assassinated. Maybe you remember that day. For for me, there was one other occasion I want to tell you about, and that was uh, I got a call from my sister. I'm the oldest of four kids. My sister is the third in line. And uh, I always joked that my sister was a boy uh, until I left home. You know, she just 
She was just with all of us. And so we had three boys, one girl, and she was a boy until I left home. And But, uh, you know, as the older brother, I kind of goof on her a little bit. I, I don't know if any of you older brothers do that. But, you know, I sort of messed with her a little bit. And so she called me. And as soon as I heard her voice, I started saying, hey, Tammy, I started sort of like, you know, goofing on her a little bit. And I'll never forget the tone of her voice or what she said. She said, John, be quiet. I have something to tell you. And from just the tone of her voice, my sister doesn't talk to me like that. I thought, oh boy. And she said, dad's been in an accident. It's serious. He's in the hospital. He's not expected to live. I'm going there with mom. Get here as quick as you can. Talk with my two other brothers. Uh, we made it down. My father on a Monday afternoon, uh, at 3.30 in the afternoon, had been hit by a drunk driver. And uh, after about a week worth of processing things, my father ended up dying. Now, what I want to tell you about that is, is that when that phone call happened, I, I, it, it's so imprinted in my mind and in my heart, I remember to this day, about uh, 15, almost 16 years later, I remember what it was like to hear my sister's voice. I remember that moment, and I also remember the funniest of things. I remember that I had stuff in my calendar for the next few days. In other words, I had appointments scheduled. I had activities. I was pastoring a church we had started. I had kind of a full week. But when I got the news of my dad's accident, everything changed. Now, I don't know if that's ever happened to you. I don't know if it's ever happened to you where, where something occurred, whether it was a big national tragedy like 9-11, or whether it was a personal thing where you had a, you had a talk in a doctor's office. You got a, a notice from your work. You got super huge uh, bad financial news or maybe a relationship breakdown happened. And the moment that occurred, it was like time slowed down and everything changed. So the question I have this morning and what I've been praying about, how, how could I share with these folks who, who I don't know? How could I share with these folks where I don't know your story? I don't know your circumstance. I don't know what you're going through. But, but I do know that it's common to human experience that we experience what I'm describing as deserts in life. And if you're not in a desert right now, you probably have come through a desert at another season in your life, or you may be getting ready, as my southern relatives say, you may be fixing to go into a desert in the future. Because the reality is, is that deserts are common to human experience. So I'd like to take you to a Bible passage, Matthew chapter 3. And in Matthew chapter 3, uh, Jesus is having an interesting experience. And, and I got to tell you, I have a little bias about the Bible. Uh, I, I was uh, born and raised in church. And so a couple areas of bias. One of my biases is that if you get familiar enough with the Bible, you just sort of hydroplane over it. You hear familiar passages, familiar stories, and you don't really get into the texture of them. So today, I'd like you to hear this story as though it was your first time. And, and for some of you, it is. Some of you, you've never seen this stuff. But others of you, if, you, if you've heard about the baptism of Jesus before, would you just kind of go with me for a moment? I want you to imagine you're in the first century. You're by the banks of the Jordan River. And uh, that's not too hard to imagine these days, the amount of rain we've had. You know, you're by a rushing river. And uh, you're there, and a crowd of people are there. And, and why, why is the crowd there? Well, the crowd's there because John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, is out there. And he is a spiritual wild man. He's got like a camel's hair garden, uh, a garment. He's eating like uh, locusts and honey pie. It's just kind of this weird little mixture he makes. And uh, 
And he's also telling people, by the way, good religious people, he's telling them, look, you need to repent to God and confess your sins and then get baptized so that you can come up and say to people, you're going to have a fresh start and surrender your life to God. This is a shocking message at this day and age. So they go out to see him and then Matthew 3 happens. So we're there by the banks of the Jordan River and this is what we experience. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Now, just again, a little backstory. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, but he previously has said, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Messiah of God. He's the Savior of God. He's God come down to earth, and he's the Savior. So when Jesus comes to the Jordan where John's hanging out with all these people and says, hey, John, uh, my cousin, would you baptize me? John says, no way. You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, let this be done. I'm going to kind of give an example here. And John consented. So we're kind of all watching this from the banks. We, we know that John the Baptist has already pointed to Jesus and says, that's the Lamb of God. And so we're watching this dialogue. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist takes Jesus and he prepares to baptize him. And we're watching that. And we're a little freaked out because Jesus is already kind of well-known, and we're a little freaked out because John the Baptist had previously said, this is the Messiah, so he's getting baptized with all the rest of the messed-up people. By the way, is there any messed-up people in this church? This is my experience. I walked around. This this church is full of messed-up people. And, and I met Dave before in Savannah, and, I, and, and Pastor Dave talking, you're led by messed-up people. And, and you're listening to a messed-up person. And isn't it cool that we serve a God who specializes in taking messes and turning them into miracles? So that's good. That's good. That's worth having for. All right. So here we are. We're at the banks of the river. We're, we're kind of freaked out a little bit because John the Baptist is taking Jesus down into the water and we're watching this and our heads are kind of exploding a little bit. And then this happens. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, if I could do it in the microphone, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased or something like you imagine the voice of God. I mean, it just breaks out from heaven. It's amazing. I think we had a picture of uh, uh, the dove, right? Do we have a picture of the dove? Do we capture? Yeah, there we go. So. So Jesus is getting baptized, and when he comes out of the water, the Spirit of God comes like a dove. Now I'm going to stop here and tell you, this is a little sidebar, okay? A little sidebar. If you're an attorney, you know what that is. A little sidebar. And basically it's this. I get frustrated with the Bible story sometimes. Like if Jesus is God's Son come to earth, where would you stage his birth? If you're me, like if you're God, you'd stage it in a palace, I would put it on all the social media. I would make sure that galactic cameras were available so we could basically broadcast this thing. At least God did bring out a celestial choir. But I would end up making this huge. But instead, he has Jesus be born in a stable, in a manger, in an obscure town, the son of immigrant parents, and in obscurity. He has Jesus be baptized. That part of the story I just don't get. But the other part of the story, somewhere in your notes, write down Philippians 2, 1 through 11, The other part of the story is there is the promise that there will be a day where Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, tongue confess. So I get confused with the story. 
But here in the story, at least when Jesus gets baptized by John, which seems very sort of humbling, when he comes up out of the water, the movie happens exactly how I want it to. The heavens open. The Spirit of God comes down in the form of a dove and a voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son. And we hear the voice of God. I mean, there's no movie that could be made like that. And we're standing by the banks of the river. What are you experiencing when the heavens open and the Holy Spirit comes? Well, i got to tell you, first time I've read this passage, this is what the Bible describes, but I have another image in my mind, and it's not of a dove. Do we have another picture there? This is what I imagine. I imagine the Holy Spirit coming like a screaming eagle out of heaven. You know, I uh, didn't grow up, but I spent 13 years in Carson Valley, and we had bald eagles there, and I've actually seen this picture. I've seen, this. I didn't take this, but we've seen uh, the uh, bald eagles come and swoop in. It's just an amazing thing. So I don't know. know, I know the Bible says it's a dove, okay? I got it. And I'm a literalist, I believe what the Bible says. But in my mind, when I'm thinking about Jesus coming out of the water and the heavens parting, I see the Holy Spirit coming like a screaming eagle and just, ah! and you just have the whole people, like we're by the side of the river, going, God, this is awesome. Let's go back to the dove. Let's go back to the dove. Seems very peaceful. But anyway, so, uh, so the Holy Spirit comes and the voice of heaven, and, and I got to tell you, I just, that's the scene where all of us are there. Have you ever watched a movie where, it, it comes to a certain part of the movie and you go like, that's, that's the pinnacle. That's the moment where it all resolves and you think the movie should be over. But then the movie continues. That's exactly what I experienced the first time I came to this passage. And I'd read it many, many times, but it was a few years ago. I read this passage and something happened to me. You know, I was born and raised in church. I told you that. This is my story. No exaggeration. I was born on a Wednesday. I was in church on Sunday. Dad and mom pastored small to medium-sized Baptist churches. And back then, they had a commitment. They're very religiously, spiritually commitment. You, you will go to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night. That's the way I grew up. Between the ages of 0 and 16, I was never allowed to miss church. I kid you not. I've been to churches, no exaggeration, cold fever, flu, mumps, uh, and chicken pox. I've been to church with all of those things. My parents would take me. They'd put me in the usher's closet, even if I was sick, and go, you're going to stay here because you've got to go to church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They were just committed to that. People sometimes go like, oh, I had a hard life. And I go, you got nothing on me. <laughs> they say, well, what was your hard life? And I say, well, you know what? Like, I had a drug problem as a kid. No, what do you mean? I was drugged to church every single week. That's absolutely true. So, so... When I read the Bible, sometimes I read the Bible and go like, I've heard this story. And I kind of, like I said, a hydroplane over it. I don't want us to do that today. Because I think God has something for you in this passage. And I want to read it to you like I read it a few years ago when God began to sink the pylons of this deep into my heart. The Holy, the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. The heavens open, voice of God. And as far as I'm concerned, the movie should be over. And we're all standing there. But then Matthew 4 happens. The very next verse. Matthew 4, chapter verses 1 through 3. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones 
to become bread. I'm not totally proud of it, but I want to show you the next slide. The next slide in Matthew chapter 4, 1 starts with this sentence. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. A few years ago, when I read that slowly, right after knowing that he had come out of the water and the heavens parted and the Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove or screaming eagle and the voice of God came out. And then I read, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. My response was, and I'm not proud of it, was, what the heck? Now, maybe you're too polite to have that response to God when you're reading the Bible. But I'm ordained. It, it's allowed. I, I, can, I can do this. I, I mean, really, I, like I read the Bible and I went like, what the heck, God? Like, Jesus comes down out of heaven, e- eternal God. He comes and be, is, humbles himself. He, he gets born in this obscure little manger. He, he goes to be baptized by his cousin. Then finally the heavens open up and the Spirit comes down. The voice of God is like, yes, now we're finally doing it right. Now we're finally doing it the way I would do it. And then I read that. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the next two verses are really weird because they say, and after fasting, going without food for 40 days, he was hungry. You think? (laughs) Folks, there are times when I go 40 minutes without food and I'm ready to gnaw on a knuckle. I mean, look at me. Like I have these carb things where I just go like, I need carbs. So... 40 days and he's hungry, you think? And then it says he was tempted by the devil. So this is not like a little flyby temptation. This is a direct temptation. And the devil says this to them. You're the son of God. Command these little stones here to be bread. Carbs. And if you're God and you have the power... Folks, I like to eat, okay? We're going to be talking about food here. So if, you, you, if you're the son of God and you have the ability to take stones and make them into bread and you haven't eaten for 40 years, what the heck? Now again, like if it's me, I go like, zap, devil, you're gone. And then the bread, the, the stones become bread and we eat. It's all good. But somehow, some way, if you know the story, Jesus faces that temptation and two others directly from Satan He overcomes each one of them by Scripture. And then at the end of it, angels come and minister to him. So here's my question. When you go through a desert experience, and I don't don't know your life, so I don't know what desert experiences you've gone through. I don't know what desert experience you're in right now. And I don't know what desert experience you're going to go through. But I know that all of us go through desert experiences. My question is, when you go through a desert experience, a, a situation you didn't predict and that you cannot control, some big national tragedy like 9-11 or some super personal thing that happens in your life. How do you handle life in the desert? And here's my problem. Some of us here today go like, hey, I signed up for the Jesus deal. You know, the Jesus deal. The one where like if I say these two sentences and ask Jesus to come into my heart and I become a Christian, then my life becomes totally perfect. And there's no problems and everything's cool. And my bank account starts overflowing and I drive this super primo car and everything is great. That's the Jesus deal we signed up for. But the functional reality of our lives doesn't bear any relationship to that. Because the reality is we face winds that come against us. And sometimes life is awesome and sometimes it's awful. And sometimes we're at the peak and sometimes we're in the pit. How do you handle your life during a crisis that you didn't predict and you can't control? 
Well, I want to take this story from Jesus and just give you a couple quick things. So if you've got your teaching notes, pull these out. There's three things. First one is this. Realize you're not alone. Realize you're not alone. When Jesus Christ went into the desert, he was not alone. He went with the presence of God, the power of God, the purposes of God in his life. He was not alone. And I want to say this to you. Some of you, you're just barely putting your toe in the water of this God, Jesus, Bible, and the church stuff. Like, honestly, if you told some of your friends, hey, I spent an hour, an hour and a half in church on Sunday, they would go, what? Some of you think back to your life. Could you have told your friends two years ago that you were going to spend your weekend with part of it in church? Like, no way. Some of you are still kind of just dipping your toe and going, like, I'm not really sure where God, Bible, Jesus, and the church fits in my life. But I want to tell you this. You are part of a great family. You may feel like you're like on the outer ring, or the, but, but you're part of a great family. And this is a place, I've walked around enough to know this is a place where relationships can happen. You can get connected here. You want to get involved in something that makes a difference here or over there? In other words, right here locally or somewhere on the other side of the world? You can do that through this church family. So you are not alone. I'm not being political at all. But a few years ago, a number of years ago, there was a, a political commercial that had to do with who are you going to call at 3 a.m.? Who do you want to have answer the phone at a 3 a.m. emergency? So here's my question to you. Do you have anybody that you could call at 3 a.m.? I hope that what happens for you when you go through the desert experience of your life is that you're not alone. I hope there's one, two, three people that you could call and go, look, man, I know it's 3 o'clock in the morning and, and I'm so sorry about this. Look, my life has fallen to pieces. I got this phone call. I got this letter. I got this thing happened in my relationship. My whole, I need you. You are not alone. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says this, the spirit of the living God, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. You are never walking through the desert alone. I know it seems dark. I know it seems crazy. I know the thunder rolls and all that kind of stuff, but you are not alone. Here's the second thing. And that is that you have to respond by wearing the full armor of God. We don't have time to unpack it today, but if you look at that Ephesians 6 passage that I gave you there, and you just kind of read through it slowly, it's interesting that all the armor, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, all those various things, those are all armor that's on the front part of you. And, you know, people have commented on that fears. Well, that, that means that, that, that the backside of you is not protected. Why is that? It's because if you're in battle... First of all, you're not alone. You've got your whole, your whole army or team with you. Second of all, you face forward. If you're in battle, you've got to face forward. And if you face forward, you're protected. So you've got to put the full armor of God. Now, take this right, but I've been a pastor for a lot of years. Born and raised in the church. I became a pastor when I was like 16, 17. So, so I'm 55. A lot, of, a lot of years of my life have been in church ministry as a pastor. I've got to tell you this. One of the hardest things is when people face tragedies and they want to hurry up and get spiritual. They want to hurry up and get close to God. And folks, here's what I've experienced as a pastor. When tragedy happens in people's lives, people either run to God or they run from God. And a lot of people think that when the tragedy happens, man, i got to hurry up and get spiritual. They think like spiritual life is like a microwave. I just got to quickly push the buttons and say, okay, God, I want to be close to you. My wife uh, is from the South. Her, her family comes from the South, from the Virginia area. And she grew up in Southern California and in Virginia. But uh, Virginia never got out of her. She, I mean, Southern cooking, that's amazing. Like, I never had biscuits and gravy before I got married. Hello. That stuff is amazing. Oh, my goodness. So then, the other thing is that I never, uh, growing up, I just my mom didn't cook it. I, I never had stew. I, I, I didn't know what stew was. So we first get married, and we've married 37 years, and so we get married, my wife starts preparing this stuff and puts it in a crock pot. 
And I tell you, to be honest, I, I thought, okay, vegetables, 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 all this kind of stuff. And then the water in, and then she plugged it in. She's, I said, what do we do now? She said, we go away for a couple hours. And I thought, this is going to be nothing but mush. It's going to be just like yuck. A good stew, every flavor of every component actually gets brought out through the stew. Did I ever tell you I'm in, into food? So, so a really good stew is like artistry. I mean, it's like all those different flavors and seasonings come to the top. It's like awesome. So can I tell you this? Spiritual life is not a microwave. It's a stew. And do you know that every single one of you are ingredients in the stew of the spiritual life of everybody else you're part of this church with? We all need each other. The Bible calls the the analogy of the body. We're all connected. You're, you're, You're all part of a stew. And Bay Hills Church has a stew that you're making. And man, your pastor's been faithful here. I think it's 23 years. Well, what God's doing is that you're all joining the story. You're all joining the stew. And that's part of what we're offering to this community. And there's a fragrant aroma in this church that gets offered to this community. And it gets offered overseas. And it gets offered down the block. But as, as that happens, spiritual life is a stew. And you got to go in with the full armor of God. And you got to just say, man, here's the thing. I'm going to be prepared. Because I don't know if you're in the desert now, if you come out of the desert, or if you're going into it. But deserts happen. Here's the third thing. And this one I want to park on a little bit. Resolve to never go into the desert without wet hair. That's a little freaky, but this is what came to me. I was reading Matthew 3, read the whole part. He goes down into the water that comes up. The heavens open, spirit like a dove or screaming eagle, voice of God. And uh, then he gets led into the desert. My response was, what the heck? But then here's what I realized. When Jesus Christ went into the desert to be tempted by Satan, his hair was still wet from his baptism. And I want to say this to you, make a commitment that you will never go into the deserts of your life without your hair being wet. Now, Dave was challenging me when, after the first service because he doesn't have a lot of hair <laughs> or any, but he has facial hair. So the principle is never go into the desert without being immersed and drenched with the presence of God. When Jesus Christ was tempted directly by Satan, he was going straight from his baptism where he heard the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Look at this passage in John 15. Jesus says, Remain in me and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine... You are the branches. So real quick, who's the vine? Okay, let me help you. If, if a pastor in church asks a question, it almost always is right to answer Jesus. Like, like even if it's not exactly the answer, it's, it's not too far off, okay? So I am the vine. Who's the vine? Jesus. So I'm the vine. You're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's the reality. If, if you want to get ready for whatever deserts you may experience in your life, or if you want to recover from the deserts you've been in before, resolve that you will never experience a desert again in your life without having your hair wet. I'm using the metaphor of Jesus' baptism. Resolve that you'll never, ever get disconnected from the vine. Stay in vital union and relationship with Jesus. It's like a crock pot, not a microwave. By the way, I mean, like, I love this church. It's great. But if this is all you're getting of God, 
If this is your hour worth of recharge, like, okay, man, it's so good to be in church and I got to be in church. I got to get recharged. And then from Sunday afternoon to next Sunday morning, that's all the God experience you had in your life. Can I tell you? Great church, but that's not going to cut it. You have to be plugged into the word of God. You have to be plugged in to small groups. You have to be connected with people. You need to be serving. Those are all things to help make sure that you have the presence of God in your life every day. Does that make sense? It's a crock pot. It's not a microwave. We've got this messed up idea that if I just push three buttons and take two verses, everything will be cool. Folks, that is not in the Bible. In fact, by the way, there's one verse. I want to mess you up a little bit. Those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. That's in Timothy. There, I don't know what this idea where we got this smooth sailing. I just say yes to God and say a few sentences and my life is totally awesome. That is not it. But what it does say is this. You will never, ever be alone. Your life will always have purpose and meaning. And you will have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living in you to empower your everyday life. Now, I'm a college president, so I I, I give extra credit, okay? So I'm going to blast through three things really quick. But these three things I think will be really helpful to you. The first one is this. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does prospers. I want you to get that phrase. Yields its fruit in season. Now, I'm not a horticulturist, but if I went by an apple tree in February or March looking for mature, ripe apples, would I find any here in this area? That's a great answer. That's awesome, dude. I have been waiting for somebody to do that. That's good. What's your name? Your name's Bob? Say hi, Bob. Bob is a smart dude. I'm serious. By the way, in the first service, I couldn't see the clock. I kept looking for the clock. And Marty, I think it was, sitting about right there. There's something about that seat that's smart. So Bob's smart and the seat is smart. Because Marty said, hey, it's up there. Now, the bad news was, is I would have gone like 20 minutes over. But because of Marty, he saved the rest of the group. So Bob is absolutely right. It's Jesus. However, if you're thinking about ripe apples and you're thinking February, March, you're not thinking with the mind of Jesus, okay? You don't have the mind of Christ because Jesus is perfect. He knows all things. When is harvest time for apples? It's in the fall, yeah. Somebody needs to say Jesus. Come on, Bob, keep going. <laughs> so the reality is, is that harvest time for apples is in the fall. So if you went looking for apple harvest in February, March, you'd, you'd be messed up because we don't expect apple trees to bear their fruit in the season of the late winter, early spring, we expect apple trees to bear their fruit in the season, which is fall, right? We understand that about fruit, but we don't get that about people. Did you know that there's a season in your life where you bear visible fruit? And then most of the seasons in your life, God's doing his work below the surface. You wouldn't chop down an apple tree in February or March because it didn't have an apple on it, would you? You go, no, I wait till September, October, November. Somewhere in there is when the apple tree bears. There's fruit in your life that gets born in season. What season are you in? So if you're going through a desert season, don't be going like, yeah, I'm rocking it. Now, here's the problem. If you're in middle school or high school, a lot of times what happens when we're younger is we go like, oh, my relationship with God is like corresponded directly with whether the girl likes me. Or whether the boy likes me. And we live kind of this roller coaster environmental faith. Now we get much more mature as we get older. In that we hide that expectation from everybody around us. 
But the truth is our faith is still going up and down based on whether we got the raise at work, based on whether the relationship worked, based on whether the circumstances are. I'm telling you this. If you have the presence of God in your life, recognize the season you're in. It will help you navigate whatever desert you face. Here's the second one. Got to go quick. I just been unpacking a lot of this whole idea of presence of God and what it means to be in his kingdom. And I just want to give you this quick little thing. Presence, dependence, abundance, joy, and peace. Seed time and harvest. Let me say this. The presence of God. If you know the presence of God is in this worship experience. I used to go to church going like, okay, music is 20, 25 minutes. And then my dad's going to get up there to talk. So I knew I could mess around. I could pass notes and do whatever uh, for the first 20 minutes. And then when my dad talked, I had to make sure I passed notes underneath his line of vision in the church I grew up. Because I grew up in the kind of church where if my dad ever caught me passing notes, he would immediately call my name. That was not a problem. What was a problem was after I got home. Because if he had to call my name during church because I'd been passing the notes to some cute girl or something, boy, oh boy, it was going to be a painful afternoon. Okay, I'm just leave it there. But I want to say this to you, that we forget what it's like to come to church and understand that when we do worship, that's not 20 minutes of warm up. That's 20 minutes of connecting our heart with the heart of God. It's opening the door of our heart and saying, God, I got all this stuff from the week. I got all this stuff from the morning and I'm going to come into your presence and I'm going to empty myself before you. And the worship leader is going to help enter me in to to the presence of God. And I'm going to just be totally dependent on you, God. I don't know if you came to church today desperate for hearing the, the word of God, desperate for hearing the touch of God. You need something from God in your life. But I'm telling you, he longs to meet you here. And when you go to presence and dependence, then what happens is there's a season of abundance. What does that mean? Overflowing bank account? It may mean that. But for the most part, abundance means this. God so richly fills your life that, you know, like whatever the life is going on, man, it's me and God. And me and God means that we are a majority in every situation. And then there's peace and joy that comes out of that. A couple of things there. that God's the God of the impossible and unexplainable. I've seen God do amazing stuff in people's lives. He is the God of order, not of chaos, but he's also the God of the nonlinear, the exponential. I've seen God just do miraculous, amazing things. So think about your life with God as like interval training, not a sprint, not a marathon. Interval training is like you walk and then you run, then you walk and then you run. That's how it happens in our spiritual life. You know, there's seasons where we're running. So just expect the presence of God to bring about his joy. In fact, just I want to teach you something. You may know it already. When I say God is good, you say all the time, God is good. And all the time. So when you're in a desert and you know the presence of God is with you and you know that he's good. It changes everything. If you're in the middle of the desert and you know God is good, then you know the evil didn't come from God. You know, this horrible disease didn't come from God. You know, the accident didn't come from God. But, you know, we live in a fallen planet, right? So, you know, that the presence of God is there and you can get through anything because you're not alone. Guess what happened, by the way, when my dad died? We grieved. We mourned horribly. It was so painful. My wife's had several family members die. You know what happens every time? We, 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 we cry. We mourn. But can I tell you this? We do not weep and mourn as people who have no hope. We experience the pain of our loss. We experience the struggle of our reality of our life. But you know what? We do that with the presence of God. So the light in front of us is not an oncoming train. The light is the hope and goodness of God. The glory of God. So we, like, we, we persevere and we overcome. We just go, look, man, we're walking with you, God. Life's kind of crazy right now, but you know what? We're walking with you. Here's the last one I want you to see. Proverbs 9, 9 through 11. Instruct the wise, they'll be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they'll add to their learning. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Through wisdom, your days will be many and years will be added to your life. The more you know about the character and nature of God, the more you press into his presence in your life, the more you will experience his touch upon you. I want to ask you to covenant to this. Never, ever again go into a desert experience of your life without your hair being wet. I'm just using the analogy of the baptism. Without your hair being wet, without the presence of God being real in your life. Now, I don't know anything about your circumstances. I know nothing about your life story. All you know about me is what I've shared with you. But I'm telling you this. God told me to come here today to tell you this. I don't know how it applies to your life, but he does. So would you close your eyes? As you close your eyes right now, I'm going to pray specifically that the spirit of the living God will minister to you. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That whoever receives the son has life. And have the right to become the children of God. The Bible also tells us the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. After this service today, we've got a prayer room. And maybe you came today with carrying a load. And I don't know what that load is. But I know somebody who does. The Bible tells us perfect love casts out fear. And I'm telling you that perfect love has a name. His name is Jesus. So with your eyes closed, I'm going to pray right now. And whether you came here with no expectations or huge expectations, I believe the Spirit of God can touch your heart right now. And for those in this room and those who will watch it by video someday, I want you to know this. Spirit of the living God, I thank you for being present in this place. I thank you for your word that is powerful and accurate and can literally change our lives. Holy Spirit, would you now move in this room and touch each one of us at our point of need? Some of us are at a place where we're just desperate for you, Father. We just desperately need hope. We need understanding. We need to know that we're not alone. We need to have your armor just all over us, head to toe, covering us. We need to know that we're standing side by side with brothers and sisters. Some of us in this room don't even really know you. And we need to press in and experience you. And some of us in this room, God, would just cry out to you and say, we are in the middle of a desert. We feel like we're just being pummeled. And Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us right now, that our hair would be wet, that we'd be connected to the vine, that your presence, your promises, your purposes, your power would be so very real to us. No, God, may today be the day where we said, you know what? I am never going in the desert again without my hair wet, and my hair is going to be wet all the time because I'm going to have the presence of Jesus. I'm going to be in the Word, I'm going to be in fellowship, I'm going to be in prayer, and I'm just going to walk with God. And I can take whatever life throws at me, because you and me, God. And I just pray that you'll knit our hearts together with brothers and sisters in this family, and that your Spirit would do an amazing, amazing work. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. We ask all these things in your precious and awesome name. Amen. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, exists to help everyone take their next step closer to Jesus. Thanks again for listening.